from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Career Talk on Business Radio. Here is your host, Dr. Don Graham. Welcome to Career Talk, your career insider. We are in business radio and we are powered by the Wharton School Sirius XM, Channel 111. It is Thursday noon and we are live taking your calls right now, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We have the dream team in studio on this snowy Philadelphia day where we are having, um, and I quote, a cyclone bomb blizzard, which I have no idea what that is, but up and down the East Coast. So, hey, Deanna and Michelle, thank you for trekking into the studio in this mess today. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham, and I'm the career director for the Wharton MBA. MBA program for executives here in Philadelphia, and I'm also a licensed psychologist and former corporate recruiter. And if it's Thursday, noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific, it is open calls, and we'd love to hear your questions on the job search career. Anything you'd like to share with us, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You can also tweet at Dr. Don Graham. So, hey, we just had New Year's Eve, and this ranks as, interestingly, the fourth most beloved holiday after Christmas, Turkey Day, and July 4th. Yet it tops the scales as the busiest night of the year for illegal gunfire. As always, we like to have our fun facts. And 360 million glasses of sparkling wine were consumed, meaning it's the drunkest night in America. So go figure. Um, Perhaps that's why over 90% of New Year's resolutions fall flat and only 9% of people are successful in fulfilling their New Year's resolutions. So today we're going to talk about how neuroscience impacts that as well as a variety of other things related to career decisions. And to help us with that, we welcome Dr. Michael Platt. Dr. Platt is a neuroscientist here at the University of Pennsylvania, and his work focuses on the brain's decision-making processes. He's got appointments in the Department of Neuroscience, Psychology, and Marketing right here in the Wharton School, and he's been recognized in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, NPR, ABC, BBC, and PBS, and I could spend the rest of the show, Michael, talking about all the places you've been recognized. Thank you for making the trek in today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Don. Nothing like getting out in the snow. Yeah, we're excited to have you in the studio. And um, one of the things, that, like as we're talking about New Year's resolutions and, and kind of coming back to work after being out for a few weeks, this is the time of year when everybody starts to, you forget your passwords, you know, typing seems to be a little <laughs> bit more difficult. You know, oftentimes in the first show of the new year, I give out the phone number wrong on the show, even though I've said it a dozen times in probably the last, you know, month, if not more. So why is that? Why is it that after a period of like 10 days, we we just start losing it all as if we've never done it. You know, you look at your password screen and you're like, "What the heck is my password?" Well, maybe it has something to do with all that uh, champagne that you yeah, consume. <laughs> all the so champagne. We, 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 that, that that is not a good thing for. I mean, in small amounts, it's a good thing for your brain, but in large amounts, it's really not. Well, one of the reasons that makes me really excited, though, about forgetting all this because I, I flip it around to the positive yeah. and I think, well, if in in ten to twelve days I can forget my passwords. Forget how to do my job and, you know, literally forget the phone number that I've said a million times on the air. That must mean that in 10 days I can make some positive changes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that uh, it's certainly my my own um, kind of personal feeling that sometimes we are held hostage by memory, right? Uh, and that sometimes when we forget some things, when we forget habits that we've learned over long periods of time, this frees us up to uh, to try new things. And there's certainly uh, neuroscience data to back that up, right? So, um, so I, yeah, I think that there's something really to that. I mean, we get stuck in ruts, uh, in kind of default modes of behavior that are very difficult to break out of. And um, when we, you know, sometimes having an external uh, kind of force, right, that that just enforces this, like you're on vacation, right? It's it's the winter holiday. That allows you that opportunity to explore something new. So is it true, you've heard this this statistic that you can, in 21 days, you can create a new habit. And so, you know, if you do something consistently, whether it's exercise or, or maybe give up smoking or whatever it is, if you can get past those those first three weeks that it becomes ingrained in your brain. 
Well, I don't know about 21 days. I think it's going to depend a lot on um, precisely the habit that you are engaged in or that you don't that you want to break. So I think, you know, quitting smoking probably 21 days is not going to be quite enough unless you have something that's equally or even more reinforcing than that. Um, unfortunately for many people, that often turns out to be something like food or something else that is uh, equally bad for them. So, um, So I think that you know, it it depends a lot on the the strength of the the habit and the type of thing that actually drives it. But um, you know, why not? I like the idea you you kind of alluded to replacing, and I'm mm. a big fan of replacing. So if mm. I want to change a habit, I always look to replace it. So obviously not with an equally bad habit. So if you talked about smoking yeah. and replacing it with eating, that may not be the best habit or drinking right. or right. Right. celebratory gunfire as as it as it were the right. you know, right. most popular thing to be doing on New Year's Eve. Yeah, I mean it th- this is the big part of the challenge which is that to to break a habit sometimes that takes a lot of effort, right? And willpower and then engaging in a new behavior that you want to make habitual, that you want to make routine so you don't have to think about it, right? That also takes effort, at least for some time. But if you can replace, uh, you know, your bad habits like uh, eating sugar or something like that with oh, something God. like, yeah, right. like uh, <laughs> eating eating that. fiber, I don't know. I mean, that's uh, that's that the, the lack of palatability there, I think, you know, makes it a, a much more difficult kind of thing to do. Um, I mean, we, with regard to the, you know, the things that are so easy to um, become habitual are those things that our, our brains were, are wired uh, by evolution to, to really find reinforcing, right, that, or rewarding. Mm-hmm. So that's why sugar is so, um, you know, so reinforcing and that we become habitual Lucky Charms eaters or whatever, Snickers bars eaters, and we can't help it. You know, I always have my Reese's peanut butter cup after lunch. That kind of thing. So we are, you know, we're primed by evolution, primed by our development to seek things that, uh, at least in, you know, in the kind of non-modern uh, day environment, would have been very uh, important to uh, to success, right? And so those 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 things like you know calories, like like water, etc. And then the other things that are, you know, we we touched on smoking, and there are obviously other uh, drugs that um, are are so powerful in terms of, of, you know, hijacking your brain's habit formation system because they actually act directly on the neural circuitry itself. So these are chemicals, um, by and large, that bind directly to uh, cells in parts of the brain that, that create reward, in a sense, and that reinforce behavior and that stamp in habits. And that's why, you know, the, the, the various drug crises that we are facing in this country are so... Um, difficult to, you know, it's so difficult to get people to disengage because those things, those chemicals actually acting directly on the brain. So bottom line is the brain is working against us in terms of <laughs> trying to, to work on our New Year's resolutions in a lot of ways. Well, you know, it's not, it. so there's, a, that's a kind of an interesting um, phrasing you use, which is working against us. So, I mean, our brain is us. Uh, our brain and our body is us. Except it's when just, it's doing bad things. Well, and no, I like no. to say it's them. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, that is sort of, that is an idea that is um, popular in some uh, some domains within psychology and certainly within um, economics, this sort of idea of dual selves or there's a, you know, there's sort of different parts of you. There's there's the, the kind of animal you that is driven, you know, by these base reinforcers, you know, food, drugs, sex, etc. And then there's the, the, the you, you, that is this rational thinking, planning ahead for the future, the person that you have an internal conversation with uh, every day. Um, but I would like to emphasize that these two yous are all part, they're all living in the <laughs> same, they're all living in the Darn. same place and they all have to work together. Uh, and in the end, uh, your brain can only make one output, uh, which is behavior. And that's the, that's the amalgam, that's the outcome of that of all the processes that we just talked about going on in your brain. Hey, 844-Wharton, 844-942-7866. You're listening to Career Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. We're here with Dr. Michael Platt, who is a neuroscientist, helping us understand how the brain makes decisions, good, bad, or otherwise, related to your New Year's resolutions, your career. We'll be talking about that all hour. So if you've got a question for the doctor, we would love to hear from you, 844-Wharton, 844-942-7866. So on that note, we were talking a little bit 
before the show, I just got back from a trip, and on the plane, I watched that movie Inside Out, which mm. has all of the different emotions, sadness yeah. and anger and all this and 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 that goes to that idea of the modular mind that Mm -hmm. that you you have these different parts of you kind of competing which is why you can be engaging in something pleasurable but feel guilty at the same time so so these things are all going on we are complex i mean as somebody who studies the brain there's so much we don't even know is there a way to get these these different parts that are all ourselves to work together to move towards the the positive choice when we're we're talking about either habits or career or decisions that will benefit us. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I, I, I'm delighted you brought up the movie Inside Out, which I thought was a, a really fantastic um, and 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 well done and 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 very moving um, portrait of of the the difficulties that you know, especially young young people can face and and how you know how that it might be reflected in what's going on in their heads. Um, it. it uh, to move forward on something that's very positive, w- rather than going after the the base things, I think it is is a real that is a a real challenge. I think part of the issue is um, recognizing that much of what we do mm-hmm. is sub so called subconscious, right? So it is it reflects processes that are going on beneath your awareness, what the you know internal monologue that you are having with yourself, um, your behavior is really kind of driven by a lot of these internal processes. And so that's um, that's troubling to many people, but it's also, it's just the reality. And so what you have real direct control over is um, quite a bit uh, less than you might uh, expect, right? Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing is, is that these processes, as you say, they do to a certain degree um, compete within your own head. I think the the best thing you can do um, is probably to just try to simplify your options. So don't make the problem so very, very hard. Um, we do know uh, neuroscience has shown us in the last 10 or 15 years that there really are limitations on the number of things that you can really usefully consider at any one time, the number of options you can consider, the number of attributes of a particular uh, goal that you might have. And um, the more, the, you know, the more things you're thinking about, the more things you're considering, the harder it is to actually weigh them up, the harder it is to consider the evidence and the value of each of those and actually make a decision. And you, so it takes longer, usually less accurate, and you feel worse about it. Yeah, it's like a ping pong ball or something yeah. going back and forth in <laughs> exactly, your head and exactly. trying to, to So focus. if you only have two, if you narrow things down to like two things, right, you got two options, the donut or the apple, um, it's going to be a lot easier to make that choice. Right. So simplifying. simplifying. The bottom line is simplifying. And I think I think reflecting. I think you brought that up in, in kind of a roundabout way. And I think I got that from the movie, too. Just like stopping to recognize that the reason some of these decisions are, are so difficult or that you know, we just kind of go for the, the easy decision is because of the complexity. And it's just easier to just be done with it. Now, uh, oh, well, absolutely. And I think that that is um, that is a big part of the – that deliberating itself um, – can feel unpleasant and uh, Exhausting. the lo- and right and there is a sense and there's some data to support this that uh, your brain uses the amount of time that you spend deliberating as a as a signal about kind of how how accurate your decision is and how confident you should be in that how interesting. decision so um, and this kind of goes back to what we what is now considered to be now considered to be kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the basic model of, of how decisions are actually made is you kind of have a race going on in your head. Uh, actually, it's it's brain cells that are racing with each other to reach a threshold for Does saying, I'm the winner. it burn calories, though? That's the th- I, it burns <laughs> calories, but, um, but overall, it's not going to, um, no, yeah, not- it's not a good way to lose right. weight or anything like that. Sorry but, to interrupt. But no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, the brain is the most expensive organ in the body and consumes about 20% of the calories that you take in, 20% of the oxygen. So it is very, very expensive to maintain, but it's not clear that you can put it into overdrive and say, you know, knock out another 5% of the calories you take in. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. So anyway, this um, this this race process, um, when you have clear evidence that one option is way better than the other, that that race is over very quickly. Uh, and when um, when the evidence is very weak or you don't really know what the options are or there are multiple options, then the race takes a lot longer. And when you um, if you kind of query the brain and say, how confident are you in your decision? You can change your decision now if you want, you know, afterward. 
or you can make a bet on uh, how how accurate your decision was. So let's then, apply this yeah. to making a decision yeah. actually around career because I think a lot mm. of people struggle with which job should I take or which yeah. career path should I go? And and those are pretty complex decisions. I mean, this is not the apple or the donut. This is the what do I do difficult. with my life? Right. So right. so this is really interesting because, like as you were saying, like the different complexities and how much is going on make a difference. So how can people who are maybe struggling right now with should I make a career change mm-hmm. or is this the year or or what should I do? Should I be a chef? Should I go into business? <laughs> should I go into private equity? What should I do? How can you kind of apply what you're talking about to that decision making process? Yeah, I think it's a. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning. I mean, it, it um, there. Couple of things there that I think are important. I mean, one is you always hear don't don't switch careers unless you have another option already in the bag, right? So uh, don't leave your job. Don't until leave your you job, have a job until you have a job, right? On the other hand, if you have this, you know, you have this sort of building sense of let's say urgency or a kind of like things aren't working for me, I would like to explore something new. Um, you know, that in that case, you might not necessarily have that job lined up, or you might not know what that uh, career might be. Um, what we do know about that process of switching, of basically stopping doing what you've been doing, even though it's kind of paying off, you know, you're you're, you're you know, you've got a job, you got a salary, it's you, know, you feel pretty you know okay about going to the, going to work every day. Um, that process also looks just like that race process in in your brain for making a simple decision about the apple or the the donut. But this is a this is a decision about stick with it or switch. And it follows that same kind of process. So if you had evidence that was very strong that said, like, the other option is going to be way, way better, right, then that race is going to take a lot less time. And you would you would decide to shift and go off to the next, you know, you'd, you'd switch and take the new job, the new career right away. When that process is sort of really, really taking a long time, um, then or when that there's less evidence that the other option is good or there's more uncertainty about it, right, um, that is going. To, that race is going to take a lot longer, and it's a lot more difficult then to disengage and and make that switch. So, um, so I mean, that's kind of like how it happens in the brain. And I guess the question might one question might be, if you you know if you wanted to speed it up or slow it down, right? What could you do? Um, and you know, I think that there are certain uh, there are certain things that that do naturally change the way that process unfolds. And one is time pressure. Right. If you're given a deadline for mm-hmm. something, then then that can um, that can shift you very quickly. Uh, your own internal state. So um, we think sometimes things like stress, for example, might uh, might promote switching behavior. And then there are differences between people as well. So as we have begun to characterize that that switching process, um, you know, there's sort of an it, for the average person, it, it it's this race process that takes a certain amount of time, but different people differ on kind of how you know how that process unfolds. That is, there are some people who are, let's call them switchers or rovers, and they are the people who kind of you know move from job to job pretty quickly and easily, and it you know it doesn't really it doesn't make them feel bad. And there are other people who it's almost impossible to kind of get unstuck. Right, so there's a lot of variation across uh, across people, in, just naturally, and um, and I think that uh, that variation may be very difficult to fight. Right, so if you are a a switcher or a rover, right, um, or you're a sitter, uh, you know you might not be able to break out of that uh, that routine. Hey, if you want to learn how to get unstuck in your career decisions, today is the day to call Career Talk 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. We have the dream team in studio on this snowy day and Dr. Michael Platt, who is a neuroscientist helping us understand how we make decisions about careers, habits, resolutions, and all this stuff in between, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're going to go to Kevin in California. Kevin, welcome to Career Talk. What's on your mind today? And so, uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, lately, I have I have um, been been uh, thinking about changing, making short changes in in my career path. Uh, nothing drastic, but short changes. Uh, however, about a month and a half ago, I, I did leave a bad habit, which was uh, tobacco. And uh, awesome. First, yeah, thank you. And 
first few weeks were, were great, right? Because I had fear of nothing. Uh, I could undertake anything I want in my life. But um, lately, I've been doubting everything I, I, I decide on. And that could be from uh, you know, a small thing of wearing a, a blue or a white shirt in the morning to, to you know, double, uh, you know, judging uh, any, any of my long-term strategies or my career decisions. Is, is that because of, of eating a habit uh, and it's so recent that my brain's not focused on? Or something so, um, that... This is really interesting to me. So wait, let me just clarify. So before you quit smoking, you would have no problems with picking out what you're going to wear or making decisions. You were just kind of like making the decisions. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have a saying. I say that when I was smoking or when I was with tobacco, I used to walk in a room like Ronald Reagan did. And now I'm confused <laughs> Richard Nixon. I'm that confused, right? <laughs> so are you feeling like it's kind of a confidence thing? Like it's an identity thing? Like you're not really sure kind of what your new identity is? It started with that, but now it's creeping into my decision, uh, con- confidence in making decisions. All right, Michael, what's going well, on in I Kevin's mean, brain? That, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm loathe to diagnose from this far away. Yes, it's, 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 <laughs> so, we should, we should so say this yeah, is not this a is, diagnosis, yeah, exactly. Kevin. But, is... <laughs> um, but it, does, it does ring a bell for me in the sense that um, – you know, one of the things that our brains are really uh, set up to do is to, and essentially what they are, is they make predictions and then they uh, examine the outcome in light of those predictions and the result of the difference between kind of what you forecast and what actually happened is something called a prediction error. And that prediction error is um, is a is a factor that uh, shapes learning and it's related to things like regret. Um, and so, um, you know, you seem to be feeling a lot of regret. And uh, as you, you know, after you make decisions, you're like, oh, darn, that was, you know, that wasn't the thing that I really wanted, or I, I don't, I don't, you know, I should have chose the other option. And we do know that, um, or at least there's some evidence that suggests that uh, in people who, and this actually was work that was done in smokers. So in people who are uh, addicted to nicotine, um, they show uh, reduced prediction error signals uh, in in parts of their brain that are important for kind of learning uh, about outcomes and changing behavior. And that and this is also a part of the brain. They also showed reduced activity in a part of the brain that's uh, related to regret. Um, so you know, oh, I should have chosen something different given how I, you know, what I see about how the world hmm. changed. And um, I don't know whether there's been follow-up to say that, you know, there's kind of a rebound in kind of an over-rebound, I mean, which you seem to be describing, which is that once you remove the um, or you you break out of that habit and you no longer have uh, the drug on board, that now you've got, you know, like a a totally, you know, out of whack, you know, prediction error signal or regret signal that um, that and that you're actually that's what that's the source of your feelings about uh, about doubting all of the moves that you make. So that, so that's interesting. Um, so okay, so this is this is potentially normal for somebody who breaks a, a potentially. habit, potentially, and and you know typical. So it could just it could Kevin be something that maybe you know in the next few weeks as you become kind of more your identity becomes more of a non-smoker and and that piece piece is gone that it kind of goes back to normal. Um, but it's interesting that Kevin's having challenges with basic decisions because we were talking earlier mm-hmm. about like the complexity of decisions like should I wear yeah. blue or white and yeah. and then what should I do with my career which is obviously something that's much right. more complex so is there a way to just I'm thinking you know you're talking earlier Michael about sort of getting more comfortable the people who are switchers or rovers become more comfortable with making quick decisions and moves is there a way for people um, to become more comfortable and, and move more towards the rovers like Okay, mm. making decisions. So if I keep making changes or ma- making decisions, my bar goes up for comfortability with, with just diving in. Right. Um, that's something that we don't. I mean, that that is just beginning to be explored. Whether mm-hmm. there are interventions or manipulations that could push somebody out of the state of being a, a you know a sitter, a person. I'm using these terms because. Um, rover and sitter are uh, can be used to characterize people, and they've also been used to characterize um, very uh, like worms. And uh, <laughs> actually, there's there's some intriguing evidence that even some of the genetics that controls whether a worm is a rover or sitter uh, play, has plays a role in people uh, as well. So, um, 
you know, what we do know is that if I could actually artificially stimulate uh, a certain part of your certain parts of your brain, uh, I could kind of shift you from being uh, uh, somebody who kind of is stuck in a rut to somebody who is, you know, to promote switching to a new option. But mm-hmm. We're not going to routinely go around. I'm yeah, not going yeah. to. I'm not going to advocate <laughs> going out fun, and buying a <laughs> buying a battery and you know or one of these off the shelf uh, brain stimulation devices and saying, okay, we'll just stimulate this part of your brain. And although it, you know, it's possible. You know, it's possible, but I don't. Um, but can you do that without, you know, the probe? And well, that's what I'm saying. That? So that's just... so that's the thing is what we what we'd like to know is that first of all, if you demonstrate you can do it with the artificial stimulation, can you then replace that with? some kind of contextual um, modification, right? You change your context, you change your, you know, your, your, I don't know, you rearrange the furniture in your house, something like that, that that might actually promote more, you know, a, a greater likelihood or being more comfortable with, with switching. And we just don't know the answer to that yet. I mean, there are a few studies out suggesting, for example, if you, uh, if you, um, in the laboratory, okay, so this is just in the lab, if you ask people to play a game where they're searching for points mm-hmm. on a screen and the points are kind of diffusely spread out and, and you don't know where they are and you're, they're hidden and you're, you're forced to kind of forage, that this will prime you to in, um, in another task that measures your, uh, kind of your, how, how likely you are, how easy it is for you to switch from one option to another. This, this seems to promote people, promote a state of being uh, a, uh, an explorer, uh, promote being a switcher. Whereas if you have people play for the same kind of points, but they're kind of really close together and they're easy to get, that that, um, that leads to people being more likely to, to sit with what they've got uh, when they do this other so test. So it's kind of like a priming Yeah, exactly. Effect. So we think of it as a priming-like <laughs> effect. Now, you know, how long does it last? Um, is it, you know, how consequential is it? Does it generalize to, um, you know, real-world context, right, outside the laboratory? We just don't know the we answer. Don't know. So, don't know. okay, so, Kevin, so I think what we're saying is you've made a great decision. You've done the hard work. You've done the hardest part. So now it's, it's kind of a combination of kind of waiting it out and, and seeing if this regulates again. And then I say – Create a lab in your 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 home and just and <laughs> well, just forage. <laughs> I know Michael's. Michael's well, like, I think the don't, thing. Don't well, I think he, he's got two things going on, right? Is he he kind of? Well, but I think the, the the hardest part for him, right, is this sense of uh, lack of confidence, right? And um, so, it, it, I, I think there are, you know there are other things you could do that could potentially promote just confidence in your in your decisions, right? And um, you know. I, that varies for for everyone, but um, you know. But if you could en- maybe engaging in some kind of behavior that's very similar, and and reinforcing, you know, similar to smoking and reinforcing, but it's good for you, right? So I, I always person who promotes exercise is the kind of thing that uh, it's good for everything. Uh, when in doubt, in, exercise when in is doubt, the answer. Exercise <laughs> is the answer. We know it's good for your brain. It's good for the health of your brain, and it's um, it's calming, right? It reduces stress. And so uh, to the degree that stress is involved in this, um, you know, in your, your sense of regret and lack of confidence, I think that um, that exercise could be helpful for that. Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for giving us a call on Career Talk 844-Wharton, 844-942-7866. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. We're here with Dr. Michael Platt, and we're going to go to James in Alabama. James, welcome to the show. What's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Graham, and hi, Dr. Platt. Um, hey, I just wanted to run, a, you know, just one question by you all. You both and um, get your thoughts. You know, I was listening to y'all talk and kind of, you know, the kind of being happy aspect of the career part and just having very kind of specific and, you know, the goal side of it. And I, so I just left a job as a March president at the top 10 at a, you know, one of the top 10 financial institutions. And um, I was the youngest person in that bank with over a hundred year history to ever get that job. And, you know, I just ultimately, I felt like I wasn't really tapped into my unconscious. And I, you know, I was, have done a lot of research on the sports psychology side and, you know, the conscious incompetence and the unconscious competence. And, you know, ultimately you want to get to that unconscious competence level. And what are just some, you know, really determining what makes you happy and kind of motivates you. Are there any more specific, um, I guess, 
ways is try to really just tap into that unconscious on the career side versus, you know, maybe eliminating stress kicking a football. <laughs> so, are, are, James, are you looking to – are you making a career change right now? Yes, I am. And so I'm really just trying to figure out what exactly, you know, drive what will make me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got some options on the table. And so right now, you know, it's not ultimately about salary, but I, you know, I am a millennial, so I'm a younger age person and there are, you know, studies that show we think differently. But um, so I, that I'm really just trying to figure out, you know, some good ways to figure out exactly kind of tap into your personal kind of, I know everybody's brain is slightly different, you know, neurons fire together, wire together, but um, just, you know, with, are there any suggestions you have to kind of figure out exactly what motivates you? So, I, I mean, James, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle this one, um, you know, from a career perspective. And you know, one of the things we know in terms of people making decisions about where they want to go next is kind of looking at what's make, made them happy in the past. And I'm not a believer in the advice of follow your passion because I think it's a pretty stressful statement because we have multiple passions and, and different times in our lives, there's going to be different things that are going to be interesting to us. But I like saying follow your professional energy, meaning that there are likely things in previous roles you've had so as the the the, in the marketing role you've had that just drive you so those things where you lose time because you get so involved or those accomplishments where you're just you know kind of beaming because you're so proud of the work you've done so really digging into that and it could have been five percent of your job or it could have been 50 percent of your job but but what are those things where you you just lose time and you feel like um, there's this sense of pride and accomplishment and you're kind of in the zone. And, and Michael, you've probably seen some of that uh, research on kind of getting in the flow and, and all of that. And, um, you know, so are there parts of your job, James, where, where that's happening? And so I would say then take that piece and it could be you love a great challenge. You love solving puzzles or it could be that you really like working collaboratively collaboratively with a team or maybe you love running up against the clock on a deadline like that's really what what jazzes you and so finding that piece and then finding that in your next role and the other thing I also say about as people are exploring new careers for the new year and thinking about what they want to do is you only need to figure out what you need to do next a lot of people put this pressure on themselves that I have to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life or my next job needs to set me up for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And it really doesn't. In today's day and age, jobs change so quickly. I mean, people who are coming out of college are going to retire from jobs that don't even exist today. I mean, looking at at kind of neuroscience and the brain, I mean, there's so many things we don't even know about it. And I can't even imagine, Michael, in in 30 years (laughs) what you'll be studying and and what you'll be probing. The the pace, I mean, uh, you know, just as as much as the pace of change in the economy, right, as as high as that is, uh, it seems to be even higher in you know in science and scientific discovery. So, um, you know, things that uh, we that were literally science fiction, or they seem to be science mm-hmm. fiction just a few years ago, are reality right now. And some of those, um, I, I'm a little bit off topic here, but some of those things are going to fundamentally change the nature of work. And uh, there are new devices, for example, new ways of accessing brain signals. Um, without getting inside your head, that um, that would give you new uh, ways of interacting with the world, with you know either um, you know not having to use your hands to to actuate things, to make things happen, to type, to or even to communicate with another person. So, um, and this stuff is is becoming reality faster than we think. Um, I mean, I you know the advice I give my the people on my team you know in terms of what you know what's gonna what makes you happy and how do you know you know it's the right job for you or the career for you. Well, what do you think about when you're in the shower in the morning? I mean, what is that big? What is the thing PG-13. you can't? Yeah, <laughs> when you're wearing your bathing suit in the shower. Um, so uh, so uh, what you know what what is that? You know, do you have a burning question? I guess the other thing, just to build on what Don was saying too, is that. Um, the opportunity to uh, to try new things, mm-hmm. right, and, and to, to build on that is, I, I think, a, a key mo- at least a key motivator for me. And um, I think in today's economy, that uh, 
that has got to be something that is um, prioritized in everyone because you're going to change careers 10 to 20 times, some Huge. people say, you know, during your lifetime. It's, it's true. And James, one last thing I want to say on this topic, because you sound like you've been incredibly successful um, at a very early stage in your career. And I think that's awesome. And I think that's also a little bit of a detriment because to what Michael just said, a lot of times when you're very successful early on, you start to, to resist taking risks because you've attained this this level and this reputation and you start to say, well, I don't want to I don't want to taint that. So if, if I could leave you with any piece of advice on this call today, it's, it's that don't don't let your success prevent you from trying new things, taking risks and, you know, expanding your professional identity because you sound like you've got a, a monumental career ahead of you and we wish you all the best. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to career. Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. For more great advice, you can follow my blog, dawnoncareers.com. We are here with Dr. Michael Platt all hour. If it's Thursday, noon Eastern, we're taking our calls live, 844-WARDEN, 844-942-7866. And now we're going to go to our pre-break quiz. Quiz. There's a quiz? Yes, there's always a quiz. And according to Wallet Hub, over 6 million people in the U.S. caught a flight to their New Year's destination, with New York City being the third most popular destination. So what was the top destination for airline travelers in the U.S. this New Year's? Think you know, 844-WARDEN, 844-942-7866. You're listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111. We'll be right back. You're listening to Career Talk on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Dr. Don Brand. Welcome back to Career Talk, your career insider. We are on Business Radio, and we are powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111, Dream Team in studio on this snowy cyclone balm day here in Philadelphia and up and down the East Coast. Stay safe out there. We've got Michelle and Dion manning the phones and making the show sound great, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham, and we are taking your calls all hour. It is open calls. It's Thursday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And we have Dr. Michael Platt in studio. He is a neuroscientist here at the University of Pennsylvania who works on helping us understand why we make the decisions we do based on brain science. So very interesting show. And thank you again, Michael, for trekking into my the studio. My pleasure. My pleasure. People want to learn more about you. Where can they find you? Ah, well, you can find me in several places, but uh, you can uh, look on the Penn Integrates Knowledge uh, Professors website, um, which is a good way to connect with me, or the uh, Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, which is a new initiative we launched about a year ago uh, that I'm directing, which is really trying to bring brain science to business to build better business. That sounds so fascinating. We have to have another show on that because (laughs) (laughs) that would be easy to have another hour topic on. So we're going to quickly answer the pre-break quiz. According to Wallet Hub, over 6 million people in the U.S. caught a flight to their New Year's destination, with New York City being the third most popular destination. What was the top destination for airline travelers in the U.S.? Dion. Okay, I got a question. Oh, a question. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. So airline travelers in the U.S., are they going from the U.S. outside the U.S. or is it just like oh, that's a in good the question. U.S.? See? That yeah. is a good question. In the U.S. Oh. In the U.S. Okay. So as the question stated, <laughs> in the U.S., Dion. All right. Um, Miami. Miami. Yes. God, you're close-ish. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle. He's close. Well, he, he's Ish. in the right state. I, I can't ask that. But now I feel like that's the answer, so I'm going to say no, Orlando. No, it's really not. Oh, okay, L.A. Well, ah, shoot. Well, Orlando's number two. Oh. So, you, yeah. So that's why he was close-ish. Yeah, and we were going to say, you know, in neuroscience, you should trust your gut. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Los Angeles gut. was the correct? No. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's, it's Philadelphia, right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> is, yeah. No, no, it is not. Michael, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I really thought I was filled. No, I'm just joking. Uh, uh, gosh, um, you guys, you guys had it right with the warm. Yeah. Well, San Diego. No, it's a party city. <clears throat> it's 
the party oh. city. Oh, New Orleans. No, it's another party city. <laughs> <laughs> Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. I didn't realize there were so many party cities. <laughs> Vegas? Are they going to Vegas? Vegas. Vegas. Wow, that makes sense. Vegas. And just in case anybody was interested, I looked up the temperatures on New Year's Eve. And New York City was probably the third because it was eight degrees. Uh, Orlando was actually the winner at 60 degrees. And Las Vegas was 43. So that actually was warmer, but not. Ish. Yeah. Ish. I don't know if people are going for the weather, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> No, so there are a lot of other reinforcers uh, a few. in Vegas. A yeah. few, a few. So let's get back to neuroscience because I love this topic and how it relates to the career. So there's a lot of questions that I have that I want to try and get through, Michael. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about networking because people who are looking to make a career change or, or get a promotion or get a raise or all these things, networking is going to be critical. We talk about that a lot in this show. But it's also not something that's natural for a lot of people. People are adverse to it. It's uncomfortable. It feels icky. So, you know. <laughs> You know, and the brain's kind of kind of well, behind I mean, a lot of that. Well, so. it's, well the, the brain, <laughs> How can we is, change the brain that? is where everything – well, it's interesting because, I mean, our brains are really wired to be social. So um, we, we have dedicated circuits in our brains that are devoted to assessing the current social environment. So who's there? What are their states of mind? What are they likely to do next? And that then motivate whether we're going to approach, be nice, you know, interact or run away. Uh, and um, so everybody's got that basically in their brains, but they're tuned differently in each person so that some people are kind of more social, more gregarious, uh, you know, more interactive and other people are less so. And so I think that that, um, that that's why I think for a lot of people it feels a little bit um, challenging to really go out there and do that. Now, we know it's it's critical, right? Networking and using your social skills is um, – and building social relationships is critical for everything that we do. It's, uh, you know, you're, it, people who have deeper connections with each other live longer, happier, healthier lives. So, and it makes sense that they also connect better uh, in business. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to, the, to having short answers to things. So, uh, no, this is my favorite topic. Can, yeah. So I know yeah. I, I'm, I'm an introvert, and I know people use introvert, There's extrovert. No way you're an as introvert. A, I know people say that, but it, it's <laughs> look. After the show, I'm just going to go in my office uh-huh. and close my door for uh-huh. four hours. But okay. um, I, I think the the point is you can't use that as an excuse because the fact is networking really has nothing to do with whether you're you're you get your energy from people or you get your energy from being alone. Right. It, it is really about building a relationship, which can be done one-on-one. It can be done in large groups. And one of the studies that I've seen that I, I love is, uh, I think it was in Harvard Business Review, where it said, actually, they've done a study where networking makes people feel literally dirty. Hmm. And uh, without getting into the specifics, basically, <laughs> they put people in in lab type networking situations and the people who were forced to network actually used more hand sanitizer and 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 things of that nature so but what they found was that when you're using it as a medium to kind of get what you want and not a mutually beneficial relationship that's when it feels dirty so Mm. one of the things that i always say is you know you need to find that mutual benefit Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, that that gets to something that's, I think, really deep about this, which is that uh, really developing a connection with someone, you, even the, even if you're doing it for a purpose, it has to be sincere. So the, you know, the, the, the kind of nonverbal cues about, you know, how you're feeling about the interaction, which relates to eye contact and subtle, you know, movements of your, your muscles of your face, et cetera, Right, those those if they're if you're not sincere, you're making it more stressful it, now. No, no, but if you're not sincere about it, if you are faking it, right, then the, the other person's brain is going to pick up on that. So that's the difference between a great actor and a really bad actor is that when if you don't actually feel it, um, there are muscles in your face that will wow. show it, and you can distinguish a really good actor from a bad actor because they're actually not feeling it. So if you are, so I think that this entirely um, builds on what you were the Harvard study you were talking about because if you really feel genuine right about making that connection you're going to have you're going to build something that's real right and that's lasting and when I say mutual benefit too I need to clarify because a lot of people say well I don't have anything to offer and so maybe you don't have anything to offer today 
But it could be that your intention is four years from now when you get that position or you move up the chain, you will have something to offer. Or maybe you don't have something to offer that person. But the study showed that it could be mutual benefit to somebody else. So it's that idea of of paying it forward. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be to the person you're networking with in the moment. It could be to somebody else. So I think that's where the important piece comes from the intention of networking. So Well, and networking, I mean – just think about it this way as well. It is it's good for the health of your social brain. So the very practice of doing it has a positive impact on the health and integrity of this circuitry in your brain that we call the social brain network. And we know that um, very specifically from studies that have been done in monkeys because monkeys are just as social as we are. They depend on having very strong uh, social network ties and alliances just like we do, and they have the same these same circuits in their brains. And if you force monkeys to network with more monkeys, okay, to build a bigger social network, then when you look inside their brains, uh, which you can do with a brain scan, you'll see that that, that circuitry has actually grown. Wow. So And it functions better. So it's basically a use it or lose it. And so I, I should say to everyone, well, this is, this is good news because even though each person might, their social circuitry might be tuned to a different level, right? You can still build upon that. So if you're kind of at a a level nine, you can still turn it up to 11 if you get out there and and really work at it every day. It's like going to the gym. That's great news. I mean, want a bigger brain network. I'm going to use that on this show pretty much from now until forever. I mean, (laughs) we haven't used that one before. We've talked about the benefits to your career. We've talked to get a bigger brain. Well, you won't get a, you'll get a bigger specific part of your brain. That's fine. And uh, there may be other parts of your brain that actually get smaller um, when you do that, but uh, it's because of competition in your brain. But okay, wait. But a don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about those parts. The parts that get smaller are the bad parts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. We're here with Dr. Michael Platt. I want to talk about kind of the the neuroscience of you know when people are hiring. So you've hired a lot of people. You've studied mm. this. So when when somebody's hiring somebody, obviously there are a lot of biases in the brain and stuff that can get in the way. So you can be a stellar candidate. Perhaps maybe meet all of the requirements, but but what's going on in the side of the hirer that could get in the way, and how can you overcome that as a candidate? Right, I think that is a real challenge. I mean, I would say that uh, the neuroscience of hiring decisions has has yet to really take off, but um, the neuroscience of how we uh, how we react to other people and the degree to which we connect with them. Uh, emotionally, we understand quite a bit about. And uh, precisely as you say, these sort of implicit biases, um, whether an individual is from a different ethnic group, a different socioeconomic group, um, culturally different, um, those, even even if you are kind of aware of it, uh, those impact the functioning of these circuits that uh, are involved in, in basically identifying with a person, resonating with them, liking them, forming a connection with them. And so... Um, and this this happens kind of uh, you know non-consciously, and, and it's very difficult to avoid. Um, the best thing you can do is to look for areas of commonality. So mm-hmm. basically, trying to uh, believe you are on the same team or you have uh, very similar goals, um, to uh, emphasize um, kind of things, even potentially physical things about yourself that uh, that 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 pull that it, that you know, that actually tie you together. I want to break that down because I think that's really important because one of the ways you can do that is you can research who you're going to be interviewing with. And Mm. you can, I mean, LinkedIn has made this very easy, but there's so much information on the internet nowadays. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so critical because, hey, you may have everything on paper, but if, if you have this advantage of knowing that you have commonalities maybe in in sports you've played or in affiliations or in causes you can use those to your advantage in the interview oh absolutely i mean that yeah so a a little bit of google stalking is probably a good thing here so so how do you do that though without being weird (laughs) (laughs) well is it weird it's not weird today no google stalking is not weird but i mean you don't want to get in there and say i've i've you know i've pulled together this list of things that we 
we have right. in common. That's right. a little weird. Right. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do that. But um, when given the opportunity in the conversation, hope, hopefully you have the opportunity, um, just just introducing, you know, the idea that, oh, oh yeah, oh, I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, too. Um, oh, I, I, you know, it sounds like you have a Midwest accent, whatever. You know, that, that kind of thing may Huge. be a way to build some rapport mm-hmm. with the other uh, with the other person. And I think people really underestimate that. I just got back from a trip from out of, you know, I was out of the country and when you I met somebody from Philadelphia. Hmm. So, obviously if I had met that person in Philadelphia, Not I, so I, interesting. yeah, I mean I probably <laughs> wouldn't even have spoken. Right. You know, it was it was a family, but because I met them halfway around the world, right. Now all of a sudden this commonality was like instant connection. Absolutely. And so I think you can use that in an interview. I think you can. I mean, um, I'd, I'd love to see some studies done where where people measure the effectiveness, right? Again, I think the the important point is to be um, genuine about it, right? Exactly. Because of because if you are <laughs> especially now that really we know forced, that your facial muscles well, that, will give you away, if you're, you're gonna, not, you're going to be given away, right? So yeah, so unless you're the greatest actor in the world or greatest you know. poker player in yeah. the world. <laughs> so, Michael, as we're wrapping up, um, you know, talking about neuroscience and, and career changes in the new year. I mean, I know this is a huge question, but you know, what is is kind of that final advice you'd give to people as they're they're thinking about making changes or changing habits or, or making 2018 the best year ever for themselves? This is a uh, well. There, there's a lot of advice one could give, but I think. Um, I, I am very uh, excited by some work that's being done by a colleague and friend here uh, at Penn uh, named Emily Falk, who's in the Annenberg School. Uh, so she studies the neuroscience of behavior change and how to more effectively tune uh, messages to get people to change their behavior. So a lot of that work is for, like, quitting smoking or exercising more. Um, but she has a really provocative study that uh, looks at um, the power of affirmation so this is like focusing on uh, on particular values that are meaningful to you, whether it's family or money or work or, um, you know, whatever. Different things, different passions that you might have that motivate you. And what she's shown is that um, if you engage in those affirmations, this allows the engagement of a part of your brain that's very important for uh, for making decisions and for valuing uh, changing behavior, and it probably it seems like it has these evalu- these affirmations have a, a role in allowing you to um, not be afraid of of kind of or threatened to feel threatened. Right. So it's cool. So a lot of cool things coming out yeah. around brain science yeah. and, and a lot of positive things. I, two things I'm taking away from this are exercise. It's good Always. for everything. Absolutely. <laughs> and networking gives you a bigger brain. Definitely. And I'm going to quote you on Definitely. that, Michael. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Dr. Michael Platt, he is a, a on many, many um boards and everything here at the university so you can find him if you just google dr michael platt and the university of pennsylvania but we've learned so many great things michelle and dion it is great to be back in the studio with you guys and and kicking off 2018 right and we're all going to do more exercise and networking so that we can have bigger brains and and do it all together and do it all together social exercise social so i mean we just then double the impact of everything hey you've been listening to career talk on sirius xm channel 111 thank you to all of our listeners and callers we're excited to be here every thursday live at noon eastern to do this show for you hey for more great advice you can follow my blog dawn on careers.com or twitter at Dr. Don Graham and we will see you next time. 